This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Hello, and welcome to this Global Impacts of COVID-19 webinar series. I'm your friendly host, Wendy Hunter-Barker, Assistant Dean here at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. Before launching into today's topic of energy and the climate, I wanted to be sure you were acquainted with how to access uh, video and story content produced by GPS. Uh, we have a few pages that might be of particular interest to those wanting to learn more about our research endeavors. And while I encourage you to explore our full website, um, I did want to just point out a couple examples today. We'll look at the faculty and research tab and the news and events tab. So if you click the faculty and research header, you'll be able to find this page. Um, research and policy topics seen here on the left as is self-evident by the name. Um, this is where we have our faculty research broken into different policy areas. And if you clicked on one, so let's say energy, environment, and health, you'll see on the right-hand side of the slide a variety of content on that topic. We have articles written about GPS events, as well as the faculty, student, and alumni efforts in that area. There are videos. You can see that we already did a, a video on health in this COVID series, and that's there, as well as a listing of our faculty and research centers, which focus on that particular topic. So this is a really handy way to get more detailed information on a topic that's near and dear to you. Another great part of our site is the news and events tab. You can see from this pull down um, that we have our, our webinar series. Um, there's also all of our events get listed here as well as our social media channels. And one place you can go if you were to click on that social media tab is our YouTube channel. Um, this channel has a plethora of videos. Some are geared for prospective students uh, with information like uh, our degrees, student life, the faculty, uh, but many have a much broader appeal. And for example, we have another webinar series, Designing Policy for a Global Impact. Those can be found here, as well as recordings of most all of our public talks. So I hope you'll check out this site and learn a little bit more about GPS. So now on to today's discussion of COVID-19 impacts on energy and the climate. Um, leading this webinar is uh, Professor, GPS Professor David Victor. And so I'm going to stop sharing my screen and turn this over to David. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And thanks all of you for taking a break from Zooming for other reasons and Zooming for energy and climate and the work of GPS. I feel like all day long I'm on Zoom um, and I'm getting better practiced at it. Um, it's really my pleasure to introduce Michael Davidson, a colleague of mine here at GPS. He's a professor uh, here at GPS and also in mechanical and aerospace engineering uh, at the Jacobs School of Engineering and is emblematic of what we're trying to do here at GPS, which is uh, in addition to having disciplinary expertise at GPS on politics and economics and management, to also reach out and build uh, uh, robust research and teaching relationships with other units on campus, uh, notably engineering, notably the Institution of Oceanography, a handful of others as well, the Rady School uh, for Business, and uh, Michael is a new hire. Uh, previously was a postdoc at Harvard University and did his PhD at MIT. 
And he's one of the very few people in the world who can work at a very micro level around critical technical questions such as power flow and how renewables are integrated into grids and also around the political and economic factors and put it all together into a new way of understanding what's going on uh, in the world, which is something he's been doing in California and especially been doing uh, in, in China and in India. Um, so I wanna just say, I, we're both gonna make a few remarks. We're gonna have a little back and forth. There's gonna be questions up on the, the chat board and I'll put those questions into the discussion as we get going. Um, I just wanna begin by, by um, a little uh, waving of our flag, which is Michael and I, are, along with several other people, are uh, co-authors on a paper in the current issue of Foreign Affairs, uh, whose editorial closed just as the pandemic spread. So this will be an interesting test. But it's basically a theory. It lays out how technologies related to climate change have been evolving over time and how they're changing the politics. And what we're seeing in effect right now is a big sledgehammer that's affecting the politics and affecting costs and affecting technology. Um, and that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today. So I urge you to take a look at this, uh, this piece. I want to just show you a little data to put this into perspective. This is not the only economic shock that we've seen. Um, since the first oil crisis, there have been five uh, significant recessions uh, that have seen periods of emissions dropping and then recovery. And I show them on this chart here. Um, since 1974, we have the five different recessions in five different colors. Each time you see emissions drop a little bit, the open circles, and then they recover, they drop, and then they recover. And the, the, the really important questions right now are how steep is the drop? Uh, the IMF has a set of projections out that mostly suggest a quick recovery. I think that's the probability of that may be dropping, maybe not to zero, but it's dropping. Um, and then what, is the, what, is the, what does the recovery actually look like in terms of emissions? And so in this next chart, um, we've overlaid the historical data since 2000 for emissions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere with the, the shapes of the declines and then recoveries from these different uh, historical experiences, from the, the very, very painful uh, recession after the second oil shock in here in the early 1980s, which, which lasted for several years and then finally recovered, um, to in some sense the opposite experience, the Asian financial crisis uh, uh, drop and recovery shown uh, uh, here in the purple line where we had a single sharp drop and then an amazing recovery, amazing in terms of recarbonization of the economy. Emissions rose very rapidly. The rise of workshop China, the reindustrialization of China, higher emissions, mainly from burning coal. So there's a huge range of possible futures. And in my remarks later, I'll talk a little bit more about what that range means. But I think before we talk about uh, ranges and the macro global picture, it's important to have a sense of where things are um, uh, in terms of key countries. Uh, and in terms of key processes, uh, and in particular, how should we think about the United States and China, their relationship uh, in trouble before the pandemic, in trouble in different ways in the middle of the pandemic. And so for that, I'm going to ask uh, Michael to, to say a few words. All right. Thanks, David, uh, for that very generous introduction. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm going to just give a few uh, points here on China and some context for what's been happening with uh, energy and emissions uh, during the pandemic and what we might expect uh, over the next uh, recovery period, next few years. And then I'm also going to put this in the context of the international negotiations. Um, David, did you want me to do those now or do you want me to do the international negotiation part? Later? No, what, uh, the, the, why don't you do, yeah, do both and, and then yeah, I'll, okay. I'll comment. <clears throat> okay, great. Um, yeah, so China is uh, the world's largest emitter um, and uh, 
uh, roughly over over a quarter of global emissions, and we'd seen some increasing growth in emissions the last few years, uh, worrying in order to reach our long-term goals. Um, when we looked at what's happened in the first quarter of this year in response to the pandemic and other factors, uh, so electricity demand fell roughly 7% year-on-year compared to the previous year's quarter. Um, this mostly came from conventional fuels, um, coal, um, as well as uh, large hydro. Uh, wind and solar saw some uh, increases relative to the previous year. So these are some promising signs that we're not seeing a huge resurgence of uh, coal-based activity in this short period. Um, and as the, and we look at the data from March, um, you know, as parts of the countries reopened, uh, we're showing some returning. Um, so March was slightly better year on year than the first quarter, uh, but service sector as predictably is very, very down, roughly 20% relative to the previous year. So um, with this reduction in electricity, we saw reductions in PM and reduction in CO2. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, potential hope that there might be some silver lining in this whole thing. And I would say that's not so much of a silver lining yet. We don't quite know. Uh, this is a very painful way to reduce emissions, and we don't know that it's going to have a, a long-term systemic impact. Um, so, uh, you know, basically right now, you know, the big question that's uh, crossing the minds of the policymakers in Beijing when they get ready for their big annual government meetings next week is how to pump money into the economy through a large stimulus package. Um, and uh, unfortunately, some carbon intensive infrastructure is often shovel ready. And so there's a big question as to whether or not they can direct that stimulus package towards some uh, uh, investments that are going to not lock in large, large uh, long term carbon uh, growth. So just to put it in context, in the 2008-2009 stimulus period, uh, China put out about 600 billion U.S., some of the numbers that are floated around this time is around 3 trillion RMB, which is about 400 billion US. Uh, that's being, uh, it's gonna be a huge topic again for next week's annual government meetings. And so the question is, you know, is this going to be going into more old fossil infrastructure or is there gonna be some other new infrastructure uh, coming through? Um, so some worrying signs on the coal permitting front. Um, so China has permitted a lot of new coal uh, projects just during this COVID period as part of sort of a preemptive stimulus uh, package, um, a little over six gigawatts permitted in just a, a few weeks in March, uh, which is more than all of 2019, according to the Global Energy Monitor. Um, this is basically central government kind of taking a step back and letting local governments kind of push forward. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of really interesting talk around this new infrastructure and where the stimulus funds might go. And so this there's a lot of talk to put this into 5G, into AI and big data, internet of things, um, transportation infrastructure, smart grids, UHV, all these, all of these things and not into um, old coal uh, fossil infrastructure. Um, but the size of these projects relative to the demand of the stimulus is still unclear. Uh, so whether you can reach that 3 trillion mark, 3 trillion mark just going through these new infrastructure or whether you need to uh, where they're going to end up going on some more, more uh, conventional infrastructures is, is yet to be determined. Um, on the renewable side, so, you know, what's going to replace coal? Hopefully, uh, renewables for the long-term uh, uh, emissions trajectory in China. Um, we have seen some, um, uh, uh, some worrying signs that, uh, you know, for example, subsidies for wind and solar have been cut. They're going to be phased out rather dramatically soon. Um, and 
the uh, certain restrictions on where we can where uh, you can build wind and solar in China have not been eased in the same way that coal plant restrictions have been. Uh, so there's uh, there's some uh, uncertainty right now as to whether uh, wind and solar could have a large boom uh, during this recovery period, uh, like what we've seen over the last uh, last five to ten years in China. And then so briefly, so sh shifting focus now to what this means for the international negotiations. So this year. We were expecting to have a COP in Glasgow later this year. That's been delayed. Uh, that was going to be the annual meeting where countries would come, hopefully with re-upped commitments to the Paris Agreement, uh, setting their carbon emission reduction targets for 2030. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on China to uh, strengthen the ambition of its commitment, recognizing that its previous one uh, seems very feasible and it could actually aim to peak its carbon emissions earlier uh, than the end of this decade. Um, and uh, I'd say probably two areas in which China could become more ambitious, and this could dovetail with the stimulus package that we'd expect to uh, see coming out of uh, uh, coming out of the the meetings next week and over the over the course of the next few years, uh, would be targeting no net new coal by 2030. Uh, there's lots of studies to document that China doesn't need any more coal in order to meet uh, its various peak demand and expected demand projections, as well as greening its overseas investments, moving that. Uh, uh, moving those brown fossil investments towards more clean energy that would help other countries move towards more low carbon trajectory. And the and a kind of a, a really big uh, question mark in all of this is what's the role of EU and China in in pushing forward a, a promising um, trajectory for these these climate discussions. So uh, there is a series of high level uh, meetings that were planned this year uh, that have been delayed, canceled um, because of the pandemic. Um, it's an open question as to whether when, when they resume these talks, climate's going to be a big priority relative to trade, which is, which is, the, which is a, a very contentious topic right now. And a lot of eyes are going to be on the EU and uh, on the 2050 uh, decarbonization target and then a 2030 uh, Green New Deal and whether EU can strengthen its commitment sufficiently in order to encourage China and other major emitters to come on board uh, when the negotiations uh, resume uh, next year uh, to re-up these uh, 2030 commitments to Paris. Um, so I think I'll, I'll pause there for a second. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you very much. That's a terrific uh, tour of the horizon beginning in China. Uh, and I think increasingly when we talk about global questions, our horizon has to begin in China. Uh, and so I really appreciate that. So I, I want to say a few things by way of initial remarks, begin a conversation between the two of us. I urge people to ask questions. I see one uh, on the question tape right now. So hopefully um, by the end of my remarks, there'll be, there'll be uh, more there, but I've got a bunch already from what Michael has said. Um, so I wanna say five things. First is um, I wanna underscore a big forecasting problem we have here. All of us in, are analysts and experts, um, and we're often asked, you know, what do we think is gonna happen? And we have a whole set of models, sometimes quantitative models, sometimes mental models. Almost always the really hard forecasting questions. We actually use mental models more than we like to admit because the technical models are complex and we need to understand what to believe and what not to believe. To me, one of the things that's really striking about, all, about what's happening right now is that um, almost all of our mental models are out the window. And because we, we, you can see new trends in various places and imagine that they're going to take off and completely transform the world. You can see that Zoom works better than earlier uh, generations of Skype, which were atrocious. 
Uh, and so therefore we could imagine never getting on an airplane again and having all meetings via Zoom. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, last time we talked about the death of destin, uh, distance in the middle 1990s, the result was we traveled more because technology made it possible to connect more and also made it possible for your office to expect that you would still be participating in all meetings even when you're on the road. And But there are many of these kinds of questions about how will human behavior change, how will politics change, and so on. And I just want to underscore that, that, our, that our models really aren't well tuned to these kinds of circumstances because this is a very unusual period. What does that Matt, what, what does that mean? I would urge everyone as you're making prognostications about what's going to happen as a result of COVID to write them down and then watch and update your priors and figure out what you know and what you don't know because mostly we're learning about things we don't know as opposed to things that we do know. Dan, Danny Kahneman, um, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for fundamental work in behavioral economics, and wrote Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, that many of our GPS students know very well. He gave an interview in The New Yorker uh, just a little bit ago saying, you know, he didn't predict any of the behavioral response or the speed around uh, the, the global pandemic. And here's somebody who's one of the world's leading experts on how humans respond to situations and to uncertainty and so on. So I just caution um, uh, low confidence in everything we say. So that doesn't mean turn off the video right now because everything we're going to say is wrong. Because some of what we say is going to write, be right. A lot of it's going to be wrong. We just don't know which parts. Um, the second thing I want to talk about is the energy markets. Um, this is about energy and climate, this session here. Uh, and so the question is, what are the, going to be the impacts on the energy markets? And I think it's really helpful to th not think about energy as a single item, but to think about at least three major energy markets that matter. One is oil and gas. And oil and gas, and oil in particular, which is where most of the money is right now, but maybe shifting over time, um, the big impacts, of course, have been decline in demand. You know, we lost 25 to maybe 30 million barrels a day on a roughly 100 million barrel a day market um, very quickly, and then had all this lovely um, market share war between the Saudis and the Russians on top of that, which was about another few million barrels a day. So the magnifying effects of all that was tons of oil. Uh, on, uh, on on the market and uh, no place for it to go. And so you have storage is backed up and all kinds of other things, prices have gone down. The main effect in the oil and gas markets has been this demand-driven impact. It's reported widely. I'm happy to talk more and answer questions about that, something I follow very closely. The electric power industry is very, very different. Demand has gone down, generally not as much as we've seen in the oil and gas industry, but the financial impacts of that have been much lesser because the oil electricity industry in most of the world is either highly regulated or is owned directly by governments. And so the capacity for those firms to stay more whole financially to honor contracts and so on, that capacity has been greater. We've learned some interesting things about human behavior. It turns out that when you can stay at home and choose your own work hours, people like to sleep in more. A variety of other things we can actually see in the data. So it's very exciting. We have a lot of papers on human behavior. Uh, that are going to come out as a result of, uh, of this. But the electric power industry is, for the most part, doing much better financially. We've seen a big change in dispatch. Um, uh, energy electric Electricity sources that don't have any marginal cost or essentially zero marginal cost, very low marginal cost, they've continued to run. That's solar, that's wind, um, uh, that's some hydro, that's nuclear. Um, uh, sources that have a higher marginal cost, natural gas and coal have been disproportionately harmed. And so that's one of the reasons why the economic pain of this 
has been magnified in terms of a bigger drop in emissions because there's been a disproportionate impact on coal. And that's the third aspect of the, of the global energy business that really needs to be thought of separately, is what does all this mean for coal? Because we've seen direct two both directions. <clears throat> what Michael said about permitting of new plants, um, generate a lot of jobs by building a coal plant, generate a lot of jobs by running a coal plant. <clears throat> that's one direction. The other direction we've seen, especially in the United States, is just continued pressure on the coal industry. So I, I think there's going to be a huge, a huge role for activists in particular to focus on continuing to try and isolate and crush coal while doing right by workers who are in that industry and helping them find new things to do. But this could be one of the big lasting effects of the, of, of the pandemic. The third of the five things I want to say is about political priorities. Because in a period, very short period of time, we went from a world where there was growing political action, growing political support, not just in the hyper green places of California and Denmark, but, but more broadly around global problems, climate change notably, uh, and longer time horizons. In periods of economic prosperity and peace, people are able to look longer into the future. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're ignorant of cost and things like that. That's what the article that Michael and I and several other people wrote about in Foreign Affairs. But there, uh, the political, the capacity to put together political deals to do to work on problems like climate change, that capacity was growing, was going up. I think the one of the most important impacts of of the climate problem of, of the pandemic on climate is political priorities are going to shift. I don't think we're going to see that in the polling. People will still say they care about climate. They'll still say they they think climate is changing. Those numbers have actually been amazingly stable uh, throughout big shocks, September 11th through the 2008-2009 crisis, at least when you control for the media coverage of the email scandals and things like that around climate change. And so that's been stable. What's going to shift is the how people make trade-offs, and in particular, the role of, of, um, of near-term priorities, health, uh, paycheck protection, things like that. So that's an obvious thing to say. We're seeing it already. Um, the reason I mention it is because, and there's a question about this is, you know, this related to this is, you know, will, will people now suddenly realize, hey, scientists are often not wrong and we should worry about global problems and we should be nice to each other and, and plan for the future and things like that. And haven't we learned that lesson from the pandemic? And I, I'm very, very skeptical that that's actually going to have that political impact. The main political impact is going to be turning inward turning short-term rather than long-term. And when it comes to making trade-offs, like how do you spend some of this money, that's where you're going to see that um, uh, that, that impact. Um, I want to just uh, show uh, uh, one, uh, one or two more charts before I finish. So the fourth thing I want to talk about is emissions. We are in uh, the middle of an unprecedented drop in emissions. Um, we've never seen anything so quickly uh, in the modern era. There's a big question about how long it lasts. If, if this fast drop lasts also multiple years, then the impact on emissions is truly, uh, truly staggering. But it's really important to keep some, some perspective. So I wanted to show on the screen here, picking up the slide that I used, the slides that I used at the, at the top to introduce this. Um, this chart here shows you, again, vertical axis here is, is, is emissions of carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels over time since the year 2000. Uh, whoops. And what you see here is the drop that we're in right now, estimated, because we don't really know yet. And then these this spray of scenarios are following a, a, a trajectory that the world was on, but we grow that trajectory after the big decline. 
at rates that are consistent with the historical recoveries. And so this steep curve is something consistent with the, the amazing, amazingly rapid growth in emissions after the Asian financial crisis. This shallow curve is consistent with a much shallower growth of emissions that happened, for example, after the Soviet Union collapsed, or actually the, the long, slow growth in emissions, which was slowest of any time in modern history, that we saw going up to the current pandemic. We had a long period of economic growth and actually very shallow growth, still growth in emissions, but very, much shallower than, than earlier times. There's a huge variation. And down here, we run this through some climate models to show what the impact of this on is on what matters ultimately, which is carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. Uh, and what's interesting to me is that you have a pretty big spread um, uh, approaching 25 parts per million uh, almost uh, in concentrations in the year 2050 based on these different growth trajectories. To put that into perspective, the single year drop that we're in the middle of right now, if we just have a drop and then we continue growing on the trajectory we were before, that'll be six or seven parts per million uh, concentrations by the year 2050. Why do you care about that? You care about that because right now there's a huge amount of attention to the drop in emissions and that will benefit the climate at a very cost, a very high cost, will benefit the climate a bit. But the really big action is in the slopes of the lines afterwards. And that's where this discussion of these stimulus programs is, uh, is, is so important. Last thing I'll say, fifth and last thing I'll say uh, very briefly is um, there's a lot of hunting around right now for places where the goal of stimulus overlaps with the goal of climate change. Because any smart political person will see that things that were possible before the pandemic imagining all kinds of uh, uh, fancy investment programs and so on. That's going to be harder to do in a world of new political priorities. The paper that came out a couple days ago, Cameron Hepburn and some colleagues uh, in the UK, that asked central bankers and monetary experts and a whole bunch of other people who are experts in the macro economy to look at a whole series of different policy packages that range from things of letter D here are uh, paycheck protection kinds of programs, up here are some R&D programs, and asked people to evaluate the impact, the multiplier impact on the economy, so that's the horizontal axis, and the potential impact on the climate would be good news or bad news for the climate. And so ideally what you want are policies that are up here in the upper right-hand corner where you have a large economic multiplier through the whole economy and a high positive climate impact. But here's the problem. You also need that to happen quickly. That's where the politics are right now. The bloodshed in the economy is huge, and so you need quick action. And so that's with this third dimension, it's hard to present three dimensions. So color is the third dimension and that's the speed, fast versus slow, where fast programs are colored blue and slow programs are way down here colored uh, deep orange. And that's where we are right now, which is we have a handful of, of programs uh, like paycheck protection programs that have a big rapid impact on the economy, large economic multipliers that are essentially neutral when it comes to their impact on climate. We have a whole bunch of programs uh, big R&D programs, advanced technology programs that, um, uh, that could have a massive impact on the climate uh, with positive multipliers in the economy, but only over very long time horizons. And that's the political art right now. And I would say right now in this country, uh, and to a lesser degree in Europe, the political art has shifted in the direction of immediate action. Uh, sounds like from Michael's remarks that he thinks that uh, um, uh, it's also shifted in the direction of immediate action, including, for example, the coal permitting activities um, uh, towards things that could, could result in, in, um, in higher emissions. So those are, that's my sense of the overall picture. I'm going to stop sharing the screen here. I'm going to ask Michael a couple of questions. We're going to have a back and forth dialogue about this, um, and then I'm going to 
bring in some more questions that are showing up on the on the tape here. I'm curious, Michael, if you could talk a little bit about um, how we should think about what the Chinese government, either at the central level or the provincial level, will do with regard to these infrastructure investment programs. Because as you said in your remarks, there are old infrastructures like coal plants that could be built fairly quickly. There are new infrastructures, which might take a little bit longer, but frankly, China's made a huge amount of progress, 5G, renewables, and so on, uh, that could also be built and could generate and could attract a lot, of, a lot of investment that have a much better impact on the climate. How should we think through the question of which of those two directions the, the Chinese governments uh, will, will take um, and to what degree do concerns about climate figure into this at all? Yeah, I think that the, uh, there's, it's an important question um, and we're going to hopefully see a little bit more coming out of the um, annual meetings next week. Uh, where there should be a little bit more guidance on how this stimulus recovery is going to be shaped. Um, I will say that uh, the time period to construct a coal plant is certainly longer than the time period it takes to build a 5G station. Uh, so 5G and some of these other um, uh, big data centers, AI-enabled industry, Internet of Things, all of these different kinds of uh, new infrastructures that are that are being considered could be deployed relatively quickly. It's just a question of the scale. Um, now, 5G is huge. I mean, you're talking about trillions of RMB of investment required to meet what China wants to achieve in terms of the 5G rollout. So that's, a, that's, a, that's obviously going to be in there. Um, in terms of the coal plants, um, uh, you know, just historic uh, kind of power uh, dynamic between central and provincial governments in China is that local governments tend to want to build more coal power plants and the central government tends to want to restrict building too much coal power plant that would generate overcapacity and inefficiency. Uh, so to the extent that the stimulus funds just go straight to local governments, which is the current plan, uh, so just sending out trillions of RMB through uh, municipal bonds and things like that, then uh, we could see some old infrastructure kind of come back to life or old infrastructure and new clothing saying you have an I IOT enabled coal power plant or something. Um, but I think that the broad trends in, in China are just much clearer that there is going to, there's a lot of demands for new infrastructure. There's tons and tons of money that's needed to build uh, these things that are already high level priorities like 5G, but you know, also EV charging stations and other things that are, uh, are gonna be positive for the climate. Uh, but I think to the point, um, and I think someone raised this question of whether this is going to be coupled with some, you know, relaxing of environmental regulations. Um, I think that the air pollution campaign, so the war and air pollution and the, and the blue skies campaign, uh, I don't think that's going to be seriously affected by this. I think that if there was backsliding on that, they would, they would receive a lot of pushback. Um, so I feel like in those areas where it's really uh, very important to maintain air pollution goals, so these are around the large cities of Beijing, Shanghai, et cetera, um, I don't think we're going to see a bunch of coal plants popping up in the countryside. Um, but, you know, we have seen some worrying trends that some of these dirty infrastructure gets built out further away from those cities. That could potentially be uh, exacerbated uh, um, by uh, sort of unchecked funds just going to local governments and building out um, these, these infrastructure. Um, I don't think that CO2 emissions are going to be the top priority when Beijing policymakers consider these things, as I don't think it's the top priority of any policymaker when they're considering the stimulus. We're trying to get out of a deep economic uh, situation. You're trying to figure out ways that's going to uh, deliver that multiplier that you talked about, 
uh, that can be shovel ready, that can put people back to work right away, um, and that's going to have a, a positive long-term impact on, on the economy. And so I think that's those are the types of uh, metrics that the, that policymakers in Beijing and elsewhere are going to be using. Yeah, and the, we're going to hear shovel ready a lot. I feel like I should go buy a shovel and then just be ready. Um, and the question about uh, rolling back environmental regulations, a terrific one from Nathan LaVega on, on, the, on the chat here. Let me, um, let me ask you about um, where we are with extension of renewable energy uh, incentives. And maybe I can offer an answer from the U.S. side. Uh, we're in the middle of a, we were in the middle of a transition from a fairly generous program of production tax credits, investment tax credits, into a program that, a program that was then going to sunset over time. Um, and on, as a matter of law, those sunsets are still in place. And worse, they are in place on a year-by-year -year basis, so they ratchet down. One of the effects of the pandemic has been to gum up the supply chains, and that's had a really severe impact on the renewable energy industry in the United States because the panels are made in China, other parts are made in other places. Uh, workers have had a hard time getting work done, on and on and on. All that means that you delay the time when the project actually begins generating electricity, which means you delay the time when, you, when you're eligible for the credit. And since the credits step down every year, that's been a huge challenge. And a lot of attention inside the industry around fixing that question. Uh, fixing it means uh, getting some guidance to extend the deadlines or changing law so that the, the whole thing is pushed out a little bit. I think the next stimulus, it seems highly probable that there'll be some kind of a deal made that protects some fossil fuels uh, and also protects some renewables. Both sides have adamantly resisted that, which is what you'd expect them to do in the middle of a negotiation, but that's the logical uh, outcome from this. I will urge people to pay attention to the way the American tax code is constructed, um, in case you don't have, haven't memorized it completely, which is that the, the policies around renewables in the U.S. at the federal level work around tax, uh, tax benefits. So you have to be generating income in order to use the tax, uh, those tax benefits. Not a lot of people generating a lot of income right now. And that same thing happened in 2008, 2009. So we may well also see those uh, provisions shifted in the direction of direct cash payments as opposed to tax credits. Uh, there's a lot of work underway. I would say I would put at, at very high the probability that some kind of set of deals between guidance and changes in law are done over the course of the next month or two. I'm curious though, Michael, as to what you see happening in China, maybe India, other places you're looking at with regard to extension of renewable energy incentives in the context of economic stimulus. Yeah, so I mean, China missed the opportunity to extend its uh, uh, subsidies for wind and solar. Uh, so, um, and in fact, announced that the subsidy, uh, the total amount of government uh, funds that are going to be available for solar, solar subsidies is going to be cut um, in half, uh, right in the middle of the pandemic, they announced this. So, um, the, clearly, there hasn't been a broad-based movement to maintain those subsidies. Um, that, of course, was planned prior to this uh, pandemic. Um, so on one hand, I guess if we think about it, not only in China, but in a lot of other countries, um, you know, the fact that subsidies are going down and going away is reflecting a positive trend that costs are coming down. It's not, those two aren't uncorrelated, right? So costs come down, the, the sort of the, the policymakers uh, uh, desire to subsidize those technologies and their, and their willingness to subsidize goes down. Uh, just a question of how quickly is it going down and what type of how uh, what type of method are they replacing these sort of fixed uh, feed and tariffs in the case of China uh, with uh, in the future. 
And so I think as we're moving away from these kind of fixed feed-in tariffs that are providing a very a generous guaranteed source of income towards more auction-based methods, which is where China's going, going back to now, um, that overall is a positive development. Um, but, you know, we can also reflect that this could be a missed opportunity. You know, if you wanted to spend, uh, you know, a billion dollars on renewables in 2008, 2009, you wouldn't get nearly as much a billion dollars in subsidies. You wouldn't get nearly as much then as you could now, right? Because the premium that's required to bring that into the market now is just so much lower. So you can you could potentially span the uh, create a large number of projects that could come online if uh, government didn't reverse the subsidies, but in fact made them more available. You can of course put constraints on you know what you know how much per project and all kinds of things, but. Basically, this uh, could be a missed opportunity uh, as China is trying to kind of uh, tighten its budget and prepare for the, the impacts of, of COVID-19. Um, another issue, you, supply chain difficulties, you know, of course, there's a very integrated global supply chain for solar PV and a lot of other technologies. Within China, there's been supply chain issues. Um, so the government did extend the uh, requirement to connect those new facilities in order to receive the these subsidies. So there was a date by which you need to connect and a date by which you need to start construction. Um, so those have been extended partially through this through this uh, uh, pandemic. So there's some movement on that, but not a huge uh, ability, uh, not a huge uh, shift towards trying to bring in more more capital support uh, renewables built on. Offshore wind has been uh, hit uh, in China as well. Okay. So. Um, you know, these kinds of changes uh, are, are going to be really um, uh, important to watch. You know, do the, do the PTC, IDC get extended here in the U.S.? Um, we saw that SIGSAW uh, pattern uh, over the last uh, 15 years that you can see that the extension of that and the, and the lapse of that has a huge impact on new, on new permitting and development. Um, a similar thing could uh, happens in China every time you have some deadline um, a similar thing happens in any country when you have some kind of deadline by which you need to construct and then you have some uncertainty as to whether the subsidies are going to be continued or not. Um, and so this is just in contrast to countries that maintained a very uh, consistent, long-term uh, and predictable source of subsidies, even if they're predictably declining, but a predictable source of uh, subsidies, like for example, in Germany, that would allow for a more steady build out uh, of renewables continued. So that's the kind of thing that one would hope to have in a, in a stimulus package that's designed for economic recovery in the long run. Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about electric power and in particular about renewables. Uh, in this country, electric power, the margin has been uh, also heavily coming from natural gas. So far, what we've seen is a, actually a big decline in natural gas prices, lots of supply, not much, uh, not much demand. Some big uncertainties there because a lot of the U.S. gas supply was a shale play where basically drillers were drilling for oil. And then when they found gas, they had a problem. So they put it on the market. So we had a lot of supply. But I think we're going to stick, my, my sense is we're going to continue to see natural gas prices uh, stay low. I want to shift and talk about a couple other aspects of the energy business and then leave a time, little time to talk about international cooperation, Paris, and so on. So quaint. Um, uh, other parts of the energy business, uh, public transportation. There's a question here from uh, Debbie Seligson about, in effect, the human behavior around public transportation. When you drive in a car alone, you can um, uh, social distance, you know, you can't social distance from yourself, but uh, you at least can be in the car alone. But public transportation is different, and there may be a, a, a long-term psychological impact of the pandemic, even in a world where there's a vaccine. Um, what we're seeing in the data right now in the United States, 
with the caveat that it's hard to interpret data that are changing, uh, that, that are only a week old, what we've seen from the weekly data over the last little bit is that car driving has gone back up, starting to come back up. Public transportation is in the remains in the toilet 50, 60% below peak and stuck there. No sign of it changing. Uh, and some of that is because of the preference for self-quarantine and control over uh, personal vehicles. I'm curious, Michael, as to how we should think through the question of whether China, which has depended to a much greater degree on various forms of public transportation, whether we're seeing these same kinds of behavioral responses, we don't know. What should we be looking for? Uh, yeah, so I you know, mentioned this new infrastructure before. New infrastructure does include uh, uh, urban uh, light rail as well as high-speed intercity rail. So we could expect a large number of new projects coming online um, uh, into the uh, as part of the stimulus package. Um, Sorry, was there something more specific? I think Gabby's question, and I think what's interesting, but we may be unknowable right now, is how um, less how much money would be spent on, on, on public transportation and more about how humans view the attractiveness of getting in a metal tube that's moving around with other humans when everywhere you turn, it's other humans who you don't know um, who are the potential source of disease. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting behavioral question. I'm not quite sure that I could I could tell you on on average what uh, people in different countries how they would approach that. Um, I will say that um, the effect that we're seeing in China is the result of an essentially countrywide lockdown. People have been restricted from traveling um, uh, between cities, uh, within cities, between villages, even sometimes within their own villages. There's interesting talk in this uh, in, uh, series uh, a few weeks ago. So um, I think that uh, that impact, so for a short period of time, the, the sort of the economy and society uh, would take a huge hit, um, but uh, how quickly it could recover is unclear. Like I can't really, but it's difficult for me to speak to the, the sociological uh, processes that are going on when people decide whether or not to use public transportation. I think it somewhat uh, rests on credibility and perceived credibility of the authorities and how they're managing the outbreak. Um, and I think if, if what, what we see in, in this pandemic, uh, if anything, is that uh, uh, governments, in, uh, particularly in Asia, seem to engender a lot more credibility than governments in the US and Europe. Oh. Um, that perceived, I mean, it's a perceived credibility, but also it could be justified by objective facts on the ground. Um, I think we're gonna to have to do a lot more post hoc analyses on that. but. Um, the fact remains that we that uh, many Asian countries took very uh, serious precautions, uh, limiting the spread at a very early time, and that was uh, had a high degree of credibility associated with people were willing to follow that. So if the governments then turn around and say, well, now it's safe to get back on public transportation and be around people, we have lots of measures in place. I, I assume that the the other direction would also be valid. Yeah. So I want to talk about another segment of the uh, energy industry, which is automobiles. Um, question here from AP um, about expansion of the auto industry. After 2008, 2009, it was a big expansion of the auto industry in China for internal demand reasons. Um, what we've seen so far in this crisis is the opposite, a complete cratering. 
Um, uh, in 2009, the average age of the vehicle fleet in the United States went up by a couple of years. People just stopped buying cars and then they prolonged that and the whole fleet got older, more inefficient, a variety of other problems associated with that. Um, so far, what we see in the weekly data uh, is that cars, as expected, car sales have plummeted. Trucks actually have not done as poorly. This is the first time, to my knowledge, ever that trucks, maybe the late 19th century is an exception, but uh, the truck, more trucks have been sold in cars uh, and uh, in, the, in the United States. And so we have a, we have a, very, we have, we have a very weak industry. Uh, nobody's feeling rich to go buy new cars with a few exceptions. Amazing promotions being put on and still no demand, almost no demand. Um, the whole industry is in, is, in a, is in a deep freeze. I'm curious as to what you're seeing on the Chinese side and how much of a priority that is for Chinese policymakers for their stimulus and reflation programs. Yeah, so in terms of transportation, um, auto production was predictably down, um, auto sales predictably down during this, this pandemic. Um, I, you know, there's this debate uh, occurring in all countries between consumption focused subsidies versus production or investment stimulus focused subsidies. Um, and uh, the, the sort of conventional wisdom was that China was trying consumption focused approaches first and realizing that's not working is now moving towards uh, in investment infrastructure. So we can, you know, and stimulus, you can see exactly the same thing playing out in, in the US where we have these, uh, you know, whole host of checks being sent out. And then now we're discussing this kind of post recovery stimulus. So that, that host of checks or that the consumption side subsidies was designed to help help lessen the impact of those um, small consumer purchases around autos, et cetera. Um, of course, it did not have, uh, did not completely uh, eliminate that impact. And, um, and in terms of where the supply of these vehicles are coming from, uh, certainly at production, as production has taken a hit, that could present issues in going, going into the, the future. Um, I think it would be very promising, it's a very promising angle that China wants to take some of the stimulus money and put it at EV charging stations that we know EV charging uh, charging stations, availability of charging is a huge uh, barrier to adopting new energy vehicles. Um, you know, but any country could do that. You know, the U.S. could spend billions of dollars to help subsidize public charging stations in every in every municipality, so that when consumption rebounds, people go to you know go back to go trying to buy a new car or, or a used car. That they're thinking about, uh, oh well, now the things have changed. Now I can now I can really try this new electric vehicle option. So I think there's there's a potential uh, uh, synergy there that countries could could take advantage of. And then at the same time, if public if they come back and public transit is much more attractive and affordable, and there's just a much uh, uh, and the performance is much better, then folks can start making different decisions around uh, you know transportation purchases. Yeah. So a number of questions, up, a lot of more questions that we can answer. A number of questions up here from David Edick about the impacts on the oil industry and several other people raising questions here. Um, it's a pretty complicated situation that we're in right now, uh, partly because just the sheer logistics of dealing with this big shock in demand um, has meant, for example, we have lots of tankers parked off Long Beach that are floating storage. And that's true in all, all major ports around the world. Anything that can store a liquid um, uh, and not be in an uh, obvious violation of the law is being used to store oil right now. It's truly impressive uh, in, a, in, a, in an unusual way. 
Um, what, what we're seeing is that some wells were, have always been designed to operate on and off and so on because they were designed to um, take advantage of, of swings in prices. For the most part, those wells are very small producers. The big producing wells are designed to run flat out. And so as those are shut in uh, geologically and from an engineering perspective, uh, it's, uh, it's very, very hard to restart them. And all evidence is that there'll be enough of a forward signal around the working off of the accumulated storage and so on to be able to restart them in time. To me, what's more interesting about the oil industry right now is that you've got a whole bunch of fragile, economically fragile, financially fragile firms that uh, were barely on the edge before, you know, more or less the entire uh, independent uh, operators in the in shale oil operations in the United States, for example, they're just getting crushed. And so they're going to go bankrupt and the bankruptcies have begun. And then we're going to see a huge consolidation of the industry around financially stronger firms, bigger balance sheets, mostly large firms, some you know, pools of capital that are set up just for the purpose of buying distressed assets happened in the last crisis. Same thing will happen here. Um, and then that, that, those new producers are going to have a longer time horizon. It can be much more measured. So we're going to see this big crushing Possibly two or three million barrels a day will come off U.S. production this year, uh, and, and then it'll come back in a much slower way. Why do we care about uh, uh, care about all of this? We care about all this because, if anything, what this is going to do is shift price formation even more firmly in the direction of large, uh, integrated, state-owned firms. And I think, in particular, the Saudi position in the global oil market, if anything, has been enhanced as a result of of all this because they're the marginal, they are the, the, the market maker. The other thing that maybe matters even more, especially in our region, is that the supply of projects that are good projects from a financial and a geo, geological point of view, that supply is huge now. And what firms are doing when they're looking at whether to pursue those projects is they're trying to combine the geology and the finances with above ground with policy risk and regulatory risk. And that means the places that have Stable regulation, you know, whether you like it or not, stable regulation are going to be the places that are going to attract that capital. And places that are in free fall and with chaotic policy environments and so on aren't. And I think it's quite possible that the, the country that will be affected by this the most will be Mexico. Um, they are going to an environment where the state-owned firm can't really compete. There's been enormous policy gyration, more to come. Um, and they're in a world where capital is very um, edgy as to where it wants to really uh, re really deploy and, and where it can earn a return. I'm curious just in the last few minutes for us to talk about the big global picture here, which is about international cooperation. Um, and I'm curious, Michael, if you could say a couple of words as to, as to where you see cooperation starting again. It's really striking that in 2008, 2009, for all of the, the economic difficulties, the major economies were talking to each other all the time. They had forums where they, they used all the time. The, the, the G20 and so on uh, would meet, <laughs> they would do things. This time around, it's not true. And the same is gonna be true for climate. We've postponed the, power, the, the conference of the parties uh, from Scotland and it's been pushed out into the future. And in theory, countries are still putting together new pledges, but cooperation isn't there. So do we look to the EU and China as the, as the countries and on maybe a few key sectors as the places where we're going to start to see the green shoots of international cooperation around the climate and energy questions? Or should we look someplace else or should we just give up? Yeah, so maybe I'll make a case for the EU-China and then, David, you could make a case for the U.S. taking a positive role. 
Oh, we're living in a dream world here, are we? Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, but on the EU side, I mean, uh, you know, the EU and China were scheduled to have two high-level talks, uh, high-level summits this year. Uh, the first one was going to be in March, April. Uh, that, of course, was canceled. And then we're going to have a uh, larger trade-focused talk later this year that uh, uncertain what, what the format, uh, when that's going to be held. Um, this was going to be about much broader than just climate, but certainly the EU wanted to put climate on the agenda. And the interesting thing is that this European Green New Deal and the 2050 decarbonization target, as well as uh, the targets that have been floated about enhancing 2030 uh, emissions under the Paris uh, Agreement have continued. And so that discussion is still ongoing in the EU despite this, despite this pandemic. So that's a really promising side. If, if all of those things can come, come together and the EU can agree on a package that would uh, both demonstrate its own strengthening of its ambition, I think it could reasonably take that to China and say, okay, this plus some other things, we can have a new deal, we can have a new bargain. Um, and this could take the place of what the US and China were able to do prior to the Paris uh, Agreement when they uh, both jointly announced their commitments which as the two largest emitters in the world, uh, really set the stage for uh, what would be success at Paris uh, in 2015. So if EU is able to do those things, so that's what we'll be watching for this summer, if EU is able to do those things, uh, then the next thing to look for is, well, to what extent can, can EU put climate on the, on the agenda when they're having these discussions with China and how big a scope can policymakers in both Beijing and in Brussels have when they're thinking about these questions? So. Um, you know, not just what are we going to do within our own borders, but also what are we doing outside of our borders? So China still has a lot of capital that it wants to deploy abroad uh, as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. Um, what is China going to be doing with that capital? Can it, can it be used towards greening, uh, you know, creating more green forms of energy and not building just uh, fossil infrastructure? Um, can the EU play a positive role? And for, frankly, for that matter, can the U.S. play a positive role? in helping countries uh, develop new energy infrastructure that's not based on, on coal. Um, I think that can, that's only going to happen if policymakers take this broader, broader look at how climate is actually going to be evolving when we think about where emissions are going to be growing and what's the role, uh, the important role of capital from these, from these large countries in helping shape the long-term trajectories that we see. So I would say we'll be looking for those, for those things uh, to the extent to which these policymakers can take a, a broader look. I don't expect them to come out with a very um, ambitious uh, new climate target in the midst of this stimulus uh, package writing process, what we're having right now. That we'd expect to come later. But the stimulus could set up nicely that the you know these types of uh, you know these types of uh, governments could have these cooperation that would come back maybe next year with some really robust discussion on well now that we're now that we put in place some positive investments, how do we come back to the table? Uh, with Paris and uh, and up our game. Yeah. So um, I think the the American role. I'm not going to paint the rosy picture. I think the United States. One of the most disturbing things to see during our lockdown of this pandemic is to watch uh, parts of America come unglued. Socially, actually, the country is is amazingly robust um, and has done very well. Uh, in terms of our politics, not so much. Uh, and that's deeply disturbing. I think it's not just a function of who's sitting in the White House. I think there are deeper causes here. 
And I think that goes to, to what the American role in all this could be, which is other countries increasingly are not going to be able to see the United States as, as a reliable, credible partner. So I think it is the case that as long as Europe holds, that Europe will be the foundation for rebuilding cooperation around energy and climate questions. And it's the EU-China relationship, with one exception, which I think is a handful of states. California, most famously, our governors never read the Constitution. They don't know the foreign policy of the province of the federal government. And that's great. Uh, and we should be encouraging more of that. We should actually be developing a much more robust state level playbook around how the states cooperate with other countries, other units, firms, and in particular, how the things that leaders in these states do that can then affect the rest of the world. Because the leaders by themselves don't matter. California is less than 1% of global emissions. So we can cut our emissions and be thrilled with ourselves, doesn't matter. We do that and then others follow, it's a big deal. So I think we really need to do a lot more on that, uh, on that front. And that's gonna be essential to uh, what my colleague John Allen calls American leadership as opposed to US leadership. It's gonna be a leadership that's a little more firmly rooted inside the, uh, in, inside the country. Um, I think we're approaching the top of the hour, um, and this has been a terrific conversation. There have been a lot of, many more questions that we've been able to answer, although we've answered many of them along the way. We give the floor back uh, to Wendy. Thank you. All right. Thank you both so much, David, Michael. This was fantastic. Um, I'm going to share my screen for just one last second here and uh, make sure everyone. Um, again, uh, knows that next week what we have up is uh, COVID-19 and labor. We'll have additional speakers from GPS faculty, Josh Graf-Zivin, Elizabeth Lyons, and Alexander Gelber. So thank you all for joining today, and we hope to see you next week. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.